All right, well, we're there in uh, Genesis chapter number 18, and uh, for those of you that are, maybe if you're a guest tonight or if you're, it's your first time here on a Sunday night, what we usually do in the evening services of Verity Baptist Church is we'll pick certain books of the Bible or certain sections of Scripture, like to, uh, tonight we're in a series entitled The Patriarchs. We're studying the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we'll just systematically go through different passages of Scripture and basically just see what we can learn from those passages and what we can apply to our lives and, and the, the different things that God would have to us to learn there. Tonight we're in Genesis chapter 18, and in this passage, it's very interesting to me because basically God uh, comes over for lunch. He, he comes over to have a meal with, with Abraham. If you look at verse number one there, the Bible says, and the Lord. I want you to notice the word Lord there. That's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital B. That's Jehovah God. The Bible says the Lord appeared unto him. The him there is referring to Abraham in the plains of Mamre. And he, Abraham, sat in the tent of the door in the heat of the day. God shows up at the doorstep of Abraham, and, and he shows up for a meal. They're going to have lunch together. And I want you to notice that there are several things that we can learn from this passage of Scripture. And I, I don't know what else to title this sermon other than lessons over lunch. They're just kind of some lessons we can learn about God over this lunch that he has with Abraham, and uh, some of it will be uh, applicable in the sense that are things that we should be doing in our life. Some of it is more doctrinal, but I'd like you to notice, the first thing I want you to notice, for those of you who take notes, the first lesson we learn about, uh, from this lunch is this. We, we learn about the pre-incarnate Christ. And what I mean by that is that the Lord Jesus Christ existed before Bethlehem's manger. The Lord Jesus Christ is God and he has always existed, and though he came to this earth in, uh, in, in a body of flesh, you know, when Mary gave birth to him, he had always existed, he will always exist, he's not created, he wasn't born, and here, when the Bible says the Lord appeared unto him, I want you to notice that that Lord is talking about Jehovah, but that Lord is Jesus Christ. What we're actually seeing in this passage is an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, how is that or, or why is that? I want you to notice what the Bible says. Look at verse 2. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men. So we got three people that showed up to Abraham's doorstep. And it says, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. Now, I want you to notice there's three men that show up, but at the end of the chapter, when they leave, look at verse 22 of the same chapter. Notice what the Bible says in Genesis 18 and verse 22. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. You see that? So in, in verse 1, the Bible tells us, I'm sorry, in verse 2, it tells us three men showed up. In verse 1, it tells us the Lord showed up. In verse 22, it tells us the man went to Sodom, but the Lord stayed. Because at the end of verse 22, it says, Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Now go to chapter 19 and verse number 1. Notice that there was three men that came to Abraham and then they left and they went toward Sodom. When, when you look at Genesis 19 and verse 1, the Bible tells us that there was two angels. Notice verse 1. And there came two angels to Sodom at even. So here's what I want you to understand. Three guys show up, right? We're told the Lord shows up. Then two 
leave toward Sodom. And you say, how do we know it's two? Because in the next chapter, there's two angels that are basically going into Sodom. But one stayed. And here's what I want you to say. When it says the Lord appeared, the Lord appeared in the form of a man. One of those men that showed up at the doors of Abraham was the Lord. And when two left, those two were angels. But the Bible tells us that Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Now keep your place there in Genesis 18 and find the book, uh, the first, uh, the New Testament book of First Timothy chapter one. You can find the T books. Yeah, they're all clustered together. First, Second Thessalonians, First, Second Timothy, and Titus. Find First Timothy chapter number one, and let me explain to you. You say, well, why do you think this is Jesus that is the Lord appearing as a man? In First Timothy chapter one and verse seventeen, the Bible says this. And do me a favor when you get to First Timothy. Put a ribbon or a bookmark or uh, something there so because we're going to leave 1 Timothy and we're going to come back to it, okay? So I want you to be able to get to it fairly quickly. But I want you to notice what the Bible says about God, 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, I want you to notice this word, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. The Bible tells us that God is invisible, the Bible tells us that God is not seen. When, we're saying, when we say God, we're talking about God the Father. We're talking about who you and I are normally referring to when we use the name God, understanding that Jesus is God. We get that. But the Bible says that the eternal king is not only immortal, but he is invisible, the only wise God. The Bible says, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, you're there in 1 Timothy. Keep your place there. Go to 1 John chapter number 4, all right? So you're in 1 Timothy. You're going to go past 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 2 Peter, 1 John, all right? Get to 1 John. And when you get to 1 John, okay, uh, put something there also. Put a ribbon or keep your finger there or something. You should be able to get back to 1 Timothy and 1 John because we're going to leave those and we're going to come back to those areas. I want you to be able to see that. 1 John chapter 4, notice verse 12. Notice what the Bible says. No man has seen God at any time. Do you see that? See, the Bible tells us that God is invisible. And the Bible tells us here in 1 John 4, 12, that no man hath seen God at any time. It says, if we, love another, if we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. He's saying that if you and I love each other, then people can see God and the love of God through us. But the Bible tells us that no man has seen God at any time. Go to the book of John. Keep your place there in 1 John chapter 4. You should have your place in 1 Timothy chapter 1. But go to the uh, gospel according to John. At the beginning of the New Testament, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Now, 1 John was written by the same John that wrote the gospel according to John. And notice what he says in John chapter 1 and verse 18. John 1, 18. He basically is quoting himself. He says this, no man has seen God at any time. Now, here he gives us a different, a different, a different uh, uh, phrase to finish the verse. He says, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So he's telling us no one has seen God, and it's Jesus Christ who declared God the Father. The only begotten Son has declared God the Father, but no man has seen God at any time. And see, here's what you need to understand. The Bible tells us in John, you're there, you're there in John uh, uh, one eighteen, but go to the beginning of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I, I had it in my notes, but I didn't turn there. Let me turn there myself so I can get to those verses. John chapter number 1, and look at verse number uh, 1. John chapter number 1. And verse number one, the Bible says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. You say, what, what's that talking about? It says the word was with God, meaning they're separate. But then it says the word was God, meaning they're the same. That's, that's the Trinity. 
It says the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. By who? The word. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of all men. We're also told in 1 John that there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. So the Word is, is, is the second person there of the Trinity. You say, well, who's the Word? Notice verse 14 of chapter number 1 of John. It says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth who's the only begotten of the father that's jesus christ the bible tells us in tim in first timothy that the that god was manifest in the flesh and here's what i want you to understand god the father is a spirit the bible tells us that god is a spirit and they that worship him must, must worship him in spirit and in truth god the father is invisible no man has seen god no man has ever seen god the father but when when you see god when anyone ever sees god in the form of a body in the form of a man what you're seeing is the lord jesus christ so here in, in Genesis uh, 18, when, when we look at this story of a man coming in the form of a man to Abraham, that's the Lord, but that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the pre-incarnate Christ. And here's what you need to understand, because today people will say, Jesus is not God. Jesus is just a man. He's just a prophet. He's just a good teacher. He had good lessons. But no, the Bible says that he was God. That's why Jesus himself, he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord. You say, well, is it the Lord saying it, or is it Jesus? He is the Lord. He's at the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come. And then he says this, the Almighty. He calls himself the Almighty, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But I want you to understand that when, when the Lord appears to Abraham, it's God. And it shouldn't be that confusing for us because we've already seen Jesus in the book of Genesis. If you remember, uh, we saw him in Genesis chapter 14. In fact, let's look at those verses real quickly. Keep your place uh, there and wherever I told you to have your place. You should have your place in 1 Timothy and in 1 John. But go to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter number 14, and I know that some of these points are going to be a little more theological and we're just kind of building some doctrine, but it's good for you to learn these things. Genesis chapter 14. Do you remember in Genesis 14, Abraham has just uh, uh, finished the battle there where he uh, helped the king of Sodom and he was really helping his, uh, his, his brother there, Lot. And the Bible says in Genesis 14, 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, which Salem is Jerusalem, or Jerusalem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was a priest of the Most High God. Remember, he was the king of Salem, he was a priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. You've got Melchizedek blessing Abraham, and the Bible tells us that the lesser is blessed of the greater, meaning that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham was. Um, look at verse number uh, 20, and blessed, and blessed be the most high God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. So there we see Melchizedek interceding between God and men. He's blessing Abraham, who's a man, and he's also blessing God. Who, why? Because he is God. And then he even receives tithes of Abraham. 
And Abraham ties there uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the same way you and I tie today to the body of Christ, the local church. Now, go to Hebrews chapter number 7. If you cut your place in 1 Timothy, you're going to go past 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and Hebrews. So if you kept your place in 1 Timothy, you got 1 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 7, we're told about Melchizedek, and I know we saw this before, but I want you to see it again. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1, the Bible says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. That's the reference we're looking, we just saw from Genesis 14. Look at verse 2. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness. So, so Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. And after that also the king of Salem, which is king of peace. You got the king of righteousness. You got the king of peace. These are all terms that are used about the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. Without father without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now look, the only person, the only man that has a body of a man, that has flesh of a man, but is without father and without mother and without descent and having neither beginning of days, there's no beginning to him and there's no end of life, is God in the flesh, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary was not the mother of God. Today you got Catholics saying, well, Mary's the mother of God. No, no, no. God has no mother. Mary gave birth to the physical body of Christ on this earth, but Christ is without father, without mother, without descendant days, without beginning. That's why the Bible says he's the alpha and the omega. That's why it says he's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He's, he, he has always been. And even all the way in Genesis, we see a man show up to Abraham in the form of a man. He's called the Lord. You say, who is that? That's Jesus Christ. And you need to understand this because today there's an attack upon the deity of Christ. In fact, a lot of newer Bible versions will attack the deity of Christ. And they'll assign a father to him. They'll say that Joseph is his father when our King James Bible never says that. The King James Bible is very careful to refer to the fact that, that, that Joseph was not the father of, of Jesus. But today, you've got these attacks on the, on, the, on the deity of Christ. So the first thing we see here, if you can make your way back to Genesis 18, is we see a lesson about the pre-incarnate Christ. We see the Lord Jesus Christ appear to Abraham. And that's why Jesus in his ministry would talk about Abraham and would say that Abraham was glad when he saw his day, that Abraham was glad when he knew Jesus. Remember, the Pharisees would say, thou art not 50 years old, and now I've seen Abraham. But Jesus did see Abraham, because not only had he seen him in heaven, but he'd met him down on earth in the form of Melchizedek and in the form uh, here in Genesis 18 as the Lord. So we see a lesson about the pre-incarnate Christ. Let me give you another lesson. Look at verse number 3 in Genesis 18. And said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass on away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourself under the tree, and I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts. After that ye shall pass on, for therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, So do as thou hast said. And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah, and, say, and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, and knead it, and make cakes upon the earth. Look at verse 7. And Abraham ran unto the herd, I want you to notice that, and fetched a calf, tender and good, and gave it unto a young man, and he hastened to dress it. Now the word 
ter- the term dress it there is referring to getting it ready to eat. You know, like during Thanksgiving, you'll, you'll have dressing for the turkey, right? Well, he began to dress this uh, calf to prepare it to eat. Notice verse 8. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree. I want you to notice this phrase. And they did eat. Who's the they there? That's the Lord. And that's the two angels. You say, what's the second lesson we can learn from this passage? Here's the second lesson we can learn from this passage is that God ate meat. The Lord is not a vegetarian. And you say, well, why? You say, well, that's silly. No, it's not silly. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And let me explain to you why. Today, there is false doctrine that has united, you know, not eating meat with religion. And in fact, many religions today will teach to not eat meat. They'll teach to be a vegan or to be a vegetarian. And even religions that don't teach you to be a vegetarian or a vegan for a long period of time, often they'll incorporate short periods of times where they tell you not to eat meat. But I want you to notice what the Bible says about that. And we could go to a lot of passages. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But go to First Timothy chapter 4, and let me give you one clear passage. First Timothy chapter 4, and look at verse 1. Notice, did you keep your place in First Timothy? First Timothy 4, look at verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed, notice these words, to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. He's talking about these are not doctrines that came from God. These are not doctrines that came from the Holy Spirit. These are doctrines that came from seducing spirits. They are doctrines of devils. They are brought about by those who shall depart from the faith. You say, what are they talking about? Look at verse 2. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. You say, why does it say that about these false prophets? Because most of these false prophets are reprobates. You know, that's what Jude 1 teaches. That's what uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 teaches. And here we're told that these false prophets are coming and they're teaching doctrines of devils. They're sedu- they have doctrines that they brought from seducing spirits. These people have their conscience seared. Notice what it says in, in, in verse 2. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Look at verse 3. These are the bad doctrines that God wants to uh, warn us about. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. You see that? See, he says, look, whenever a religion tells you don't get married and abstain from meat, he says that religion is not getting those doctrines from God, Almighty God. They're getting it from seducing spirits and from devils. You say, well, what religions on this earth teach that you're not supposed to eat meat or that you are to abstain from meat or that you are to abstain from meat for a short period of time? Let me give you a list of, of major religions who teach you know, that you should abstain from meats either all the time or from time to time. Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Catholicism. You ever heard of Lent, right? That's not, that's not the stuff you pick out of your belly button, all right? It's not Lent. You know, it's, it's a time period where you say, I'm going to give up meat. You know, I'm going to give up this. Uh, Judaism, Islam, Rastafari uh, religion, the Baha'i faith, Islam, Taoism. All these religions teach Either that you shouldn't eat meat, or they'll teach that from time to time, you know, when the sun's up during this period of the year, or for this time, for these 40 days, don't eat meat, abstain from meat. Look, the Bible says that if someone is teaching you to abstain from meat, that doctrine came out of hell. It came from the devil. And it's interesting that the Lord appears, and guess what? He eats flesh. He has meat. 
And of course, we see Jesus in the New Testament eating fish and doing all those things. And by the way, you know, Catholicism is the one that does their little land where you abstain from meat. But guess what? Catholicism also forbids their religious leaders from getting married. And here the Bible says, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meat. That's a wicked, you know, and it's interesting because they're like, well, to be the pastor, because now, you know, the, the ecumenical movement is trying to make Catholics seem more like Christians. So they're not really calling them priests anymore. Now they call them pastors. Well, the pastor, you know, he, has, he can't get married. Hey, one of the qualifications of being a pastor is being married and having children. And here we're told, if you're forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meat, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Notice verse 4. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused. Hey, it's all good to eat. Eat all of it. He said, you know, there's nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. We learned this morning that we're supposed to receive everything with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Look, you just pray over your meal. You read the Bible before you eat. You, and you, you know, bite into that thing. You know, uh, I think Brother Vladi and I were talking about, hey, during the tribulation, I'm a, you know, if you can get into that zoo, eat that zebra. You know, I mean, eat that giraffe. Hey, you say, well, we're not supposed to, hey, just, you know, sanctified by the word of God in prayer. You know, it's good. Every creature of God is good. And nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Look at verse 6. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things. So why are you preaching this? Because here's what the Bible tells me as a preacher. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. I'm trying to be a good minister of Jesus Christ by reminding you that it's good to eat meat. It's good to eat flesh. The Lord ate meat. So we saw the pre-incarnate Christ. We saw the Lord God eating flesh, eating meat in the Bible. Go back to Genesis 18. Let me give you the third lesson. The third lesson that we get is we get a lesson on the omniscience of God. You see, that's a big word. What does that mean? The word omniscience comes from two words, and it's actually it's found in Scripture. I'll show you. Uh, Omniscience isn't found in Scripture, but something very similar to it is found in Scripture. And I'll show it to you here in a little bit. But the word omni means all or pertaining to all. The word that we pronounce as omniscience or it's the word science, which is talking about knowledge or having a systemized approach to knowledge. Omniscience means this, that God is all-knowing. And this is a doctrine in the Bible. An attribute of God is that God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows everything. And we learn that. One of the places we learn that in Scripture is right here in Genesis 18. Look at verse 9. And they said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? This is, they're asking about Sarah to Abraham. And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. This is the Lord speaking. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door, which was behind him. So I want you to understand, they're not in the tent. They're outside the tent at this point. They say, where's Sarah? And they say, Sarah's inside the tent. She's on the other side of the curtain. She's on the other side of the tent. And then God gives this prophecy. He says, Sarah, thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well-stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. She was basically an older woman. She'd gone through, you know, menopause or whatever. She wasn't able physically to have children Anymore, The Bible tells us that her, de- that, that, that her and Abraham, as far as having children, their bodies were dead, not able to have children. Look, look at verse 12. Therefore, because Sarah hears this, therefore Sarah laughed. 
Okay, but I want you to notice, because here's what's interesting. In chapter 17, Abraham laughed. And, and, and I might be bringing a sermon to you in this series just on the different laughters here of Abraham and Sarah. So I don't want to get too deep into this. But I want you to notice, Abraham laughed out loud. He, he laughed verbally where, where people could hear. But the Bible tells about Sarah, look at verse 12. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself. Do you see that? That means she laughed in her mind. Not out loud, not verbally. No one heard her. Just in her own mind and heart, she kind of laughed. You say, well, what did she say when she laughed? Notice, saying, after I am waxen old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also. And the Lord said unto Abraham, wherefore did Sarah laugh? I want you to notice that the Lord knew what she had done in her mind. The Lord knew what she had done in her heart. She did not laugh aloud. She did not laugh verbally. She laughed within herself. But as soon as she laughed, the Lord says, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord at the time of point that I will return unto thee according to the time of life? And Sarah shall have a son. Now notice verse 15. But then Sarah denied. Sarah says, No, no, saying, I laugh not, for she was afraid. I'd be afraid too. If I just had a thought in my heart, you know, if I just laughed and then there's a guy on the other side of the door says, Why'd you laugh? And I'd be like, whoa, what's going on here, you know? And notice she, she denied. She says, she says, I laugh not, for she was afraid. And he said, nay, but thou didst laugh, all right? Now, now keep, keep your place there in Genesis 18. Did you keep your finger in 1 John? Well, I told you to keep your place in 1 John. Can you get back to 1 John? Look at 1 John chapter 3. This is what's known as the doctrine of the omniscience of God. God is all-knowing. God knows everything. And here's what you need to understand. God is different than Satan in that Satan is not all-knowledgeable. Satan does not know everything. But God does. In fact, even what you think in your mind and in your heart, God is knowledgeable of everything. And we learn in this passage that God is omniscient. He, is, he knows all. Nothing is hid from him. First John chapter 3 and verse number 20, the Bible says this, For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And I want you to notice this. And, okay, we're talking about God, right? God is greater than our hearts. And God, notice, knoweth all things. The Bible says that God knows everything. There's nothing hid from God. The Bible says, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto him to whom we have to do. The Bible teaches the omniscience of God. We have a God that knows you. He knows your thoughts. That's why the Bible says that even the, the thought of foolishness is sin. So we should be very careful to keep short accounts with God, even in our own minds, when we sin in our own hearts. That's why the Bible says, you know, Jesus talks about sin in your heart. He says, but whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. See, God knows the sins of your heart. He knows the sins of your mind. He knows when you're laughing within yourself. And we learn here about the omniscience of God. Here's an attribute of God. God knoweth all Things, But let me, give you, let me give you another lesson that we can learn. Go back to Genesis uh, 18. Look at verse number 14. Not only do we learn of the omniscience of God, but we also learn about the omnipotence of God. We learn that God is omnipotent. You say, what does that mean? Well, remember, the word omni means all or pertaining to all. The word uh, potence or, pot or, 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 or potency is in reference to power. 
The Bible teaches us that God is not only omniscient in the sense that he has all knowledge, but God is omnipotent in the sense that he has all power. Because remember, he said, he's looking at this 90-plus-year-old lady saying, you know, you're going to give birth in less than a year, in nine months, you're going to give birth to a child. And she laughs and says, well, you know, now that I'm waxing old, you know, well, I have pleasure. Now are you going to do these things? And notice the response. And he says, hey, Sarah, I know everything. I know you laughed. I'm omniscient. But then he also talks about the fact that he's omnipotent. Look at verse 14. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, will I return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. You know what he's saying to her? He's saying, I am all-powerful. I am almighty. In fact, in Genesis 17, if you just flip one chapter over, back, look at verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. When God first appeared to Abraham in Genesis 17, notice what he says. The Bible says, Genesis 17, 1, And when Abraham was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am the, notice this word, almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And it's interesting that Jesus in Revelation says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the almighty. You say, why is that? Because he's God. He's God in the flesh. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient, and he's omnipotent. There's nothing that he cannot do. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Go to the book of Jeremiah 32. Let's just run a couple of verses to show you this found throughout Scripture. If you find Isaiah towards the end of the Old Testament, right after Isaiah, you got the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter number 32. Look at verse 27. He says something very similar. Jeremiah 32 and verse 27. He says, Behold, I am the Lord. Notice again the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And he's asking a question, but he's saying, there's nothing. He said, tell, tell me the one thing that's too difficult, that's too hard. He said, I, I created the heavens and the earth. He said, I created all that in them is. He said, I, I'm the creator of the whole universe. He said, I can bring life even to a womb that is dead, even to a body that is dead. And he says, is anything too hard for me? He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Go to Luke chapter 1, verse 37 in the New Testament. you got Matthew, Mark, Luke. And it's really interesting that God brings this up often in Scripture when referring to the barren womb. When promising a woman that can't have a child, that he can give her a child in due time. And he, he will often bring up this idea, is anything too hard for the Lord? And that ought to be, uh, you know, comforting. Knowing that God can do anything and God can provide anything. Sometimes we just have to wait on his timing. Look at Luke one thirty-seven. Notice what he says in the same context. Luke one thirty-seven. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. That's why, you know, I, I try not to get too wound up, you know, about things. And sometimes people ask me questions like, what are we going to do about a building? What are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about that? You know what? Here's what I know. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. God can do whatever he wants. We just have to wait and see. And you know what? Maybe we're in a Job stage of life. Maybe things are going to get bad. Maybe things are going to get worse. And you know what? We just have to take good at the hand of God and evil. We just have to be okay and be content in the will of God, knowing that there's nothing too hard for the Lord, that he can do all things, that with God, nothing shall be impossible. And whatever God wants done, he can do. You're there in Luke. Go, go, go back. Go backwards to the book of uh, Matthew, Matthew 19, look at verse 26. You got Luke, you're going to go past Mark into Matthew. Matthew 19 and verse 26, notice what he says. 
Matthew 19 and verse 26. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. See, the Bible teaches this idea in this doctrine of the omnipotence of God. This is the type of things that people go to Bible college to learn. All right? I'm not even charging you tuition. I'm teaching you the attributes of God, the doctrines from the Bible. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. Go to Revelation 19. Look at verse 6. Let me show you the fancy word in Scripture so you don't go out of here talking about, you know, pastors going back to the Greek. Okay, it's not Greek. But it is in our King James Bible. Revelation 19. Look at verse 6. Revelation 19 and verse 6. Should be fairly easy to find, last book in the New Testament. Revelation 19 and verse 6. Notice what the Bible says. And I heard, as it were, the voice of great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, notice, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. You see that? It's a Bible word, omni, meaning all, potent, meaning powerful. He's omnipotent. He's almighty. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. We learn about the attributes of God here in this chapter in the book of Genesis. Go go back to Genesis 18. Let me give you the fifth lesson. Genesis 18. Look at verse number 12. So we saw the pre-incarnate Christ. We saw that the Lord ate meat. Bless God. That's great. Don't feel guilty going in and out after church or something. And we, uh, we learn about the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God. Let me give you another, another example. This is a little more practical. Genesis 18.12 is actually a really famous verse in the, in the book of Genesis because it's quoted and, 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 and we find uh, that God kind of comments on it in the New Testament. Genesis 18.12 says this, Therefore Sarah laughed within herself. Okay, remember, she's talking in her own mind, saying, After I am waxen old, shall I have pleasure? I want you to notice this phrase, and if, and if you're a lady in this room, you ought to underline this in your Bible. She says, my Lord being old also. She's talking about Abraham, and she calls him Lord. She says, she says shall, after I am waxen old, shall I have pleasure? And then she says, my Lord, talking about Abraham, being old also. And it's interesting because she calls him Lord in her own mind, in her heart. And this is quoted in the New Testament. God kind of takes this verse and he uses it as an illustration for, for ladies and for wives. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and look at verse number 1. We see here a lesson on how to be a great wife. Because Abraham had a great wife in Sarah. And God even highlights this even though she was doing something bad where she was laughing in her own heart at God, but he highlights what she said about Abraham when she said, my Lord being old also, and he talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, if you kept your place in 1 John, you want to just go backwards, okay? You got right before 1 John, you got 2 Peter, and then you got 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, look at verse number 1. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, notice what the Bible says. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection... To your own husbands. The word subjection means to be brought under his authority, to put yourself under his authority. It says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, 
They also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wise. He's saying, look, if your husband's not saved, he might get won over by the conversation of the wise. The word conversation in our King James Bible is referring to your lifestyle, the way you live your life, the way that you act. He said you might be able to win them over. The one time that God says, you know, kind of mentions lifestyle evangelism, he's talking about a wife who's living a good, godly life and being a great testimony to her husband. And by the way, even if your husband's saved, but if he's backslidden, often your testimony can bring him back to the things of God. Notice verse 2. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. So he says, if they behold your chaste conversation lifestyle and it's coupled with fear, look at verse 3, who's adorning, let it not be that outward adorning. And listen to me. Outside looks only take you so far. And, you know, there comes a point in a marriage where I don't care how beautiful the woman is, if she's a demon to live with, no one's going to want to be with her, right? And, you, you, you know, the, you say, well, yeah, I'm a jerk, and yeah, I'm mean, but look, I'm so pretty. Hey, that only takes you so far, all right? There comes a point where, like, that doesn't matter anymore. And, of course, the Bible tells us that beauty fades as we grow older, you know, the Bible tells us those things in, in Proverbs 31. But notice what God says, Proverbs, First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of the plating of the hair and wearing of gold and putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament. Notice, because he says, don't put ornaments on the outside. He's, and he's not saying that it's wrong to do that. I think it's right to do. I think it's good. I thank God that I have a beautiful wife. I come home from work, and her hair is nice, and she looks nice, and she smells nice. Hey, that's great. You ought to, you know, take pride in yourself. You ought to try to look nice for your, for your husband. Don't take this verse to say, you know, look all frumpy and say, well, pastor said, you know, that my, the way I look doesn't matter. No, that, that's not what I'm saying. But here's what he's saying. Put more importance on the inside than you do on the outside. Notice verse 4. But let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament. Say, I want jewelry. This is the kind of jewelry you should have. The ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. Isn't that different than, you know, better is to be in the rooftop, we're seeing this morning, than in a wide house with a brawling woman? He says, look, the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is, the, which is in the sight of God of great price. Now notice verse 5. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. He said, in the old time, in the Old Testament, these godly women, they adorned themselves. They made themselves beautiful to their husbands by having a meek and quiet spirit, by being under subjection to their own husbands, by adorning themselves inwardly, not only outwardly. Notice verse 6. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You see that? Whose daughters ye are? As long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Here we have God quoting the passage in, in Genesis 18. And sometimes ladies get upset, you know, when I preach these things. And I'm about to get on the guys, all right? So, and, then, and, so, and then sometimes guys get upset, you know. And they're thinking like, well, pastor's just preaching that, Look, you know, at me. No, you know why I'm preaching it? Because it's Genesis 18. I don't know if you noticed, but last week we were in Genesis 17. And the week before that we were in Genesis 16. And like, even like this morning, people will leave upset. Pastor was preaching at me because I'm a complainer. I'm like, you know, uh, here's the thing. You know, we're in a series. 
Yeah, you're right. I like I I I orchestrated this whole series knowing that you were going to complain right before I preached the sermon. Maybe you complain right before I preach the sermon because God's trying to tell you something. You know, I like these alliterated sermons because I'm like, look, I'm not that smart. All right, I'll tell you right now. Next week I'm preaching on covetousness. All right, this was planned. You know, uh, comparing, complaining, covetousness. All right, if you're covetous, be here. All right, and if you want to be mad at me, you can be mad at me. That's fine. I don't need you to be my friend. I just need you to get right with God, all right? But here's what it says. He says, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Here's what he's saying. Abraham made herself beautiful. She ordained herself beautifully to her husband, not because she necessarily called him Lord out loud. You know, it's not like she's going around saying, yes, Lord. You know, And the word Lord in the Bible just means like, sir. It means like, you're the boss. And look, ladies... You want to get some brownie points with your husband? Call him boss, you know? What can I do for you, boss? You know, I'm, I'm sure that will go over well. But here's the thing. I'm not saying you even have to do that. I'm not saying you got to call him Lord. But here's the thing. In your heart and in your mind, you ought to think of him as your Lord, as your boss. Because even Sarah, in her own mind and heart, as she's laughing at God, she's saying, am I going to have a child after I'm waxing old? And my Lord being old also. And in her mind and her heart, she just thought of Abraham as her boss, as her Lord. And then God in the New Testament says, hey, women, more than just having an outer appearance, more than just doing, you know, nice things with your hair and nice things with your makeup and nice things with your clothing, make sure you have a meek and quiet spirit. And he, and he highlights saying, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. She had an attitude that was submissive to her husband. And the Bible says that she ordained herself. She made herself more beautiful. She made herself more appealing to her husband by doing that. All right, let's go back to Genesis 18. All the ladies are upset, so let's get on the men. Look at verse 16. We not only see a lesson for how to be a great wife, we also see a lesson for how to be a great husband. It's funny how God works those things out. Genesis 18, verse 6. And the men rose up from thence. And looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that, w- that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall, sh- shall be blessed in him? Notice verse 19, For I know him. He says about Abraham, I know him. That he will, if you're a man, you need to underline these words in your Bible, that he will command, you got to underline that word, command his children and his household, and then underline these two words, after him. Do you see that? God says, I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken to him. So we learn about Sarah, how to be a great wife. How was she a great wife? She had this attitude of submission to her husband. In her own mind and heart, she called him Lord, and, she, and she, she submitted and made herself beautiful to him. But here's the thing. She was a great wife, but you know what? She also had a great husband. And here's what's great is that God says, before Abraham even had Isaac, God says, I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. You say, well, what does it take to become a great husband? There's two things you got to do. Notice it says that he will take command, all right? That's talking about the leadership role. He's, he's not just, you know, oh, whatever, 
doing whatever. He's taking the command. But you know what? It's not just, here's, what, here's where leadership fails. It's not just somebody getting up and saying, you need to do this. You need to do that. You, I got all these rules. Because notice it says, I know him that he will command his children and his household. Notice these words, after him. So look, he took command. But you know what Abraham also did is he set the example. It was after him. It was he showed them how to do it. And look, that's the type of leadership that women are looking for, that the job site's looking for, that everyone's looking for. They don't just want a guy that takes command. They want a guy that takes command, but then he also sets the example. Go to Joshua 24. Let's look at it in a different passage. Joshua 24, verse 15. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. See, it's not enough to just say, I'm the boss, you know, and tell everybody what to do. Hey, and even as a pastor, you know, I don't get up here and just say, you got to go soul winning, you got to go soul winning, you got to go. No, guess what? I go soul winning. I show up for soul winning. And you know what? I've been to churches where the pastor preached go soul winning, and I never saw him go soul winning. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of soul winners at that church because people don't respect that. And, and, you know, you guys, you know, some, you're, you're like, well, I wish my, yeah, pastor, get on those women. Tell them they got to call me Lord. Tell them they got to be submissive. But you know what? Sometimes women are not good followers because they don't have a good leader. Because the Bible says, God said to Eve that your desire is going to be to Adam. He said, God said, I put in a woman a desire. She wants to be led by a man that is going to take command and charge, but also not be a hypocrite. Also, take the, uh, give the example. He wants the, she wants the command, but it's also after him. Are you there in Joshua 24? Look at verse 15. Notice what Joshua said. These are famous verses about leadership. In the home, Joshua 24, verse 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. Now notice what Joshua says, okay? He turns it, he flips it, but it's the same thing. He says, but as for me, notice, he says, I'm going to give the example. I'm not just going to say, but as for my wife, But as for my children, you guys go to church. I'll stay home. You go to church. No, no. He says, but as for me, he says, I'm going to set the example. And my house, I'm going to give the commands. We will serve the Lord. Do you see that? See, good leadership, men, you want to be a good leader? You say, I want a wife that follows me. Hey, look, give the command, but also set the example. It's not enough for you to tell your wife, well, you got to do this, you got to do that. Hey, you got to set the example. You got to be spiritual. You got to be walking with God. God said about Abraham, I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. He's going first. And in fact, we saw that in Genesis 17. Abraham was circumcised, remember? But so was all the men in his household. They followed him because they saw him taking the lead. They saw him doing it. They saw him being the leader. So we see a lesson on how to be a great wife. How, how do you become a great wife? Start calling your husband Lord, all right? I'll give you all the money you want, I promise. But, but really, it's more about calling him Lord in your heart, you know, submitting yourself in your heart under him. But men, you say, well, my wife doesn't submit. Maybe you're not much of a leader. Maybe she's not really impressed. Maybe she needs someone to kind of just take charge and set the example. Take command and say, follow me, after me, after him, as for me, and my house, we will serve the Lord. Go back to Genesis 18. Let's finish up real quick. In Genesis 18. So we saw a lesson on the pre-incarnate Christ. We saw a lesson on the Lord eating 
flesh. We saw the lesson on the omniscience of God and the omnipotence of God. We saw a lesson on how to be a great wife, and we saw a lesson on how to be a great husband. Let me just finish with one, with one, uh, one thought tonight. And here, I want to say this. We're only going to make it halfway through Genesis 18 uh, tonight. Next week, we're going to deal with that passage where Abraham is like, you know, I'm making a deal with God about sparing Sodom. I'm going to be preaching a sermon next week on the subject of a covenant of salt. And we're going to be talking about this idea of when God destroys nations and, and what it takes to spare a nation and, and why Sodom was destroyed before we get into Genesis 19 about the destroy, destruction of Sodom. But I want you to notice in Genesis 18, look at verse 3 again. Let me just give you one last thought and we'll finish up tonight. Genesis 18 verse 3. And said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass on away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched. This is Abraham speaking to the Lord. And wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye your hearts. After that, ye shall pass on. I want you to notice this phrase. For therefore. The word therefore means for this reason. He says for therefore. He says for this reason are ye come to your servant. Here's what he said. He said, hey, my Lord. Because they kind of show up, right? And, and they're on their way to check out Sodom. And they're just kind of passing by. But Abraham says, hey, you know what? Let me get a little water. And let me get, you know, let me get some water. Let, let me uh, wash your feet. You know, rest yourselves under this tree. Let me go fetch a morsel of bread. You know, come for your hearth. Let me go get a calf. Let me go get something ready. He said, why don't you stay and have lunch? Why don't you stay and have a meal? Why don't you stay and fellowship? And he says, because therefore, he said, for this reason. Are you come to your servant? He said, Israel Abraham saying, didn't you come here to fellowship with me? Didn't you come here to have a meal with me? Didn't you come here to spend time with me? And they said, so do as thou hast said. Clip down to verse number eight. And he took butter and milk and the calf, which they had dressed, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. Go to Luke chapter 10. This is the last passage I'll have you go to. Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. Here's what I want you to understand. We sing that song, you know, come and dine. I want you to know that God desires to fellowship with you. And God desires to fellowship with me. And here's the thing. Here physically, God appeared in the flesh to Abraham. And Abraham said, well, didn't you come to have a meal with me? Didn't you come to fellowship with me? And they said, yes, that's why we're here. And he gets things ready, and they have a meal. Wouldn't you want to be there? I mean, I would love to be there under that tree, eating and fellowshipping and talking with Jesus Christ, talking with God. But here's the thing. God wants to fellowship with you, and God wants to fellowship with me, and God wants to have a meal with us. And you know what? We can't have a physical meal with Christ, but you know what? Spiritually, God wants to sit down with you and I and commune together. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 38, we find another example of this. This was, of course, in the flesh with Christ, but notice what it says. Luke 10, 38. Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him in her house and she had a sister called Mary which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his words. But Martha, notice, but Martha was cumbered about much serving. She was busy serving. She's not doing anything wrong. She's not doing anything sinful. She's cumbered about with much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, does thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? 
Bid her, therefore, that she help me. Because remember, Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. She was communing and fellowshipping with Christ. Martha was cumbered about with much serving. Look at verse 41. And Jesus answered and said unto her. Now look, Jesus said something different than I would say. Because you know what I would say? I would say, Martha, you lazy, get to work. You know, I'm sorry, Mary, you know, get to work. Here Martha's running around doing everything and you're just sitting there. But that's not what Jesus said. Notice what Jesus said, verse 41. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. And you know, I just want to challenge you tonight. Make sure that you are spending time with the Lord and fellowship with him every day. Because one of the things that I've noticed about our movement, and I I love the movement we're in. I I love, you know, the men that lead churches and the stands that we take and the zeal that we have, the soul-winning marathons. I think all of that is great. But, you know, one of the concerns that I have in our movement is that we're very busy people. We're at this marathon and that marathon and this conference and that conference and we're here and we're there and we're all over Facebook and we're all over Twitter and we're all over YouTube and we're all over this and we're all over that. And I have a concern that very few of us are actually spending time in the word and in prayer, communing with God, fellowshipping with God, spending time in prayer. I have a concern about our church. And we have people that you show up to soul winning on Saturday morning, you show up for soul winning on Sunday, you show up for soul winning on Thursday, you show up for this and you show up to that, and I'm thankful for it. I'm glad you do. I hope you serve. I hope you get involved. I hope you show up early to the services and stay late. I hope you're comforted about with much serving, but don't forget to spend time with God. Because you're not going to last. In fact, I'm watching some of you. I can tell just by the way you look, just by the way you act, just by the things you talk about, I can tell you don't spend a lot of time in the Bible. You spend a lot of time on YouTube. You spend a lot of time listening to preaching. But listen to me. God would rather you not listen to every sermon every pastor in our movement preaches and you actually open a Bible and spend time communing with him and fellowshipping with him. Amen. Because God desires to fellowship with us. And you know what? If you're, you're saying, I'm listening to every sermon Pastor Anderson preached, hey, praise the Lord for it. I'm listening to every sermon Pastor Romero preached, hey, praise the Lord for it. I'm listening to every sermon Pastor Dave Burson preached, Praise the Lord for it. I'm listening to every sermon Pastor Manley preached. Praise the Lord for it. But if you're not reading your Bible, you're not right with God. Amen. And you shouldn't be listening to all those sermons. You shouldn't be spending all that time on Facebook. You shouldn't be spending all that time with all these things and not communing with God at the feet of Christ, fellowshipping with the Lord. And you're not going to last. And you're not going to last very long. You, your soul winning is not going to be that great. You're not going to be here four years from now, ten years from now, because you're not spiritual. You know a lot, but you're not walking with God. And you know what? The needful thing is that we spend time. So here's a question I have for you. How much time are you spending with God in prayer? I'm not asking you to answer that aloud, but answer in your heart. Because guess who knows the answer? The omniscient God. How much time are you spending in your word? Reading the Bible. Listen to all the sermons of all the pastors after you read your Bible. The Bible says search the scriptures daily. It doesn't say search YouTube daily. It says, search the scriptures daily. Read the Bible. Spend time in fellowship with God. Make sure you've read the Bible cover to cover. And it's like, you know, in today, in our movement, I'm not trying to pick on you, but people pride themselves like, oh, man, I'm so spiritual. I listen to every sermon Pastor so-and-so preach. I go, really? How many times have you read the Bible cover to cover? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm still working on it. You've been coming here for four years. What do you mean you're working on it? Read the Bible. Spend time with God. What he desires, what he wants is for you to spend 
time with him in fellowship. And here's my concern. We're cumbered about with many things, but we're ignoring that which is needful, which is to be at the feet of Christ, fellowshipping with him every day. God shows up, says, I want to fellowship with you, Abraham. I want to spend time with you, Abraham. And you know what? Tomorrow morning, God wants to fellowship with you. And he wants to fellowship with me. Let's make sure we don't forget that.